your cities in the Midwest are completely unlike these coastal cities in terms of their demographics, their history, their culture, their economy, their built form, the climate. And I really felt that there was no indigenous R&D about Midwestern cities on their own terms. What should these places be doing based on their own unique history? And I still think it's tremendously under, there's a tremendous lack of that. You're listening to Aaron Wren, a.k.a. The Urbanophile, on this episode of Michael Loves Indie. Hello, friends. Michael here. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Today's guest is Aaron Wren, one of my favorite people. Just somebody I've been a fan of for 15 years, one of the most thoughtful observers of American cities. And the conversation happened in early March, right before COVID-19 hit the Midwest United States. But I wanted to put it out there either way, even though I know it feels like the conversations we had before coronavirus were like five years ago. But I, I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you will too. Aaron Wren is originally from a very small town in southern Indiana. He went to undergrad at Indiana University. He was a management consultant and traveled a lot, and during that time wrote a lot as sort of a side hustle about how much he loved different American cities and their unique characteristics. And his side hustle became this incredible body of work under the name The Urbanophile. And I know so many fans nationally of the Urbanophile, not just in the Midwest, and in many other cities. He ended up turning that body of work into a career, and for over five years, he led urban affairs for the Manhattan Institute, living in New York City. And I'm really proud that I was part of a group of people who recruited him back to live in Indianapolis recently. In the interest of full disclosure, he has done a lot of research and writing for the organization I work for, the Indy Chamber, in addition to continuing to write nationally about cities. And this conversation was really just a reflection on his coming back to Indianapolis, how he turned his passion into a career, his observations of the unique characteristics of Midwestern cities and how oftentimes they don't get discussed when you know in the same way we talk about coastal cities. I think there are a lot of good takeaways, whether your perspective is focused on Indianapolis or where you, whether you're just a, a fan of the work of Aaron Wren. So without further ado, here's Aaron Wren, a.k.a. The Urbanophile. Here with Aaron Wren, and um, I don't know, he's been back in Indianapolis almost three months. Is that right? Yeah, a little less than three months. Yeah, a little over two months. Yeah, a better way to say it. And I want to I want to ask you about your life and kind of what got you to this point. But um, while it's fresh, um, you know what were you, so you, I'm trying to think? You'd been in New York about five years after living here for a time. Uh, what What's the experience been like coming back? last few months? It's been really good, to be quite honest with you. Um, I always like to think about that. If you come, when you come back after a a time somewhere else, you get that first impression uh, before you, um, 
it, you know, before you kind of acclimate and re-go native. And it's good to think about what that is. And I, I would say my impressions are were overall very positive. Even though I came here in like midwinter, which is not usually the best season of the year here. I'm living in Fletcher Place, and um, I did a I did a blog post back in 19, or excuse me, 2009, I think it was, 2008 maybe, uh, looking at Virginia Avenue, uh, and I was I had an apartment in Fountain Square. I was actually working in this building uh, when I was with Accenture, and like I do now, I would sometimes walk to the office, and uh, I just know I wrote a blog post. I think the title was I almost got killed because that's what happened. Somebody almost ran me over on the street. And uh, if you look at the street designs, you would have things like uh, sidewalk ramps, like pointing out into space at McCarty in Virginia. That was just a dreary uh, place to be. Now you go down Virginia Avenue and it's got the cultural trail right there. And you've got like brand new bus rapid transit stops there. And oh, by the way, what else is there? That, str- that stretch of Fletcher Place had very little on it back then. I think maybe Calvin Fletcher was there. They've got Amelia's Bread. You've got Milk Tooth. Um, you've got, as at 1205 Distillery, Rook is there. Uh, there's some salons there. There's, um, you know, the dugout is still there. That's an old school establishment still there. And so it's interesting to see and contrast over the course of a decade in that spot just how much improvement there has been uh, in that. And I find it in- interesting and, uh, you know, maybe surprising uh, that coming back, actually some of the things that I have here are not just cheaper than in New York, but better than New York. Certainly almost everything is like radically cheaper. A 16-ounce Starbucks coffee uh, in New York is $4.25. Here it's $2.45. So you transpose the numbers in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um I think there's this thought in New York, because it's like the center of the universe, that it must be the best of, of everything. We just have the best of everything. And maybe across the entire five boroughs, maybe there is the best of everything at some level, but it's not necessarily accessible. And uh, on average, uh, not there are things in New York, I'd just flat out say, are below par in some respects. But coming back here, I'm just really amazed at like how much better the food is here in some categories than it is in New York. And so my family, we usually go to the farmer's market and do mostly cooking. So we would go to, um, you know, we'd get some of the better bread products in New York. They're pretty good. Well, Amelia's is better than any bread wow. I had in New York. That uh, Circle's ice cream, better than any um, place I went in New York. And so I'm just going out, the, the meats you get at Goose the Market or at Turchetti's, better than anything I had access to uh, in, in New York in terms of meats. And I'm sure probably there's like some great butcher in Brooklyn somewhere. Uh, but you'd be amazed uh, at, at how much better uh, some of the things that are available here are than there were in some of the some of the neighborhoods in New York. I would I would have killed in New York. I live in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Killed to have a, a grocery store like Wildwood Market within walking distance yeah. of my apartment. It just you just didn't have that there. And um, and so I think there are a lot of things are actually better here, uh, even though we don't, we don't think. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, you know, Milk Tooth's a fantastic restaurant, but we've been trying to go out every Saturday. After we go to the market, we try to go out for breakfast somewhere in, in, in town. And probably of the, you know, eight or nine different places we've gone here, all but one of them would have been in the top third to a top quarter of all the breakfast places we ever went to in, in New York. Wow. And, and so I think, you know, I think you look at it, the quality here uh, is actually, you know, very good in a lot of ways. Now, what I say is things that I do, I love New York – 
as a city too. And, and there are definitely some things I miss. The things that I miss foremost are some of the high culture items. I was a big opera fan and, you know, uh, the Metropolitan Opera House is just like, there's nothing else like it in the world. I yep. mean, even Chicago has, uh, you know, a great opera house, but just so much less quantity. And so there's some things like that. Um, but, but here has been, it's been pretty good. And, and the other thing I would just say, um, uh, that we decided to be a one car family. And I think that's something that's possible here today in a way that was not possible even five years ago when I left. Uh, you know, so we have, we have a child. So it's like, you know, you're going to be able to, to handle like everybody has their own car. Like, you know, I mostly walk to the office and I've been able to use the red line to get around. And on occasion, maybe I'll take an Uber someplace, but I've, I've actually been using Indigo, um, yeah, you know, in a way that I never would. I used Indigo once the last time I was living here. And and the route I was on ran like once every half hour. Uh, and now I'm like, I find myself using it much more. Yeah. And, um, and so I feel like there's like a lot, just been a tremendous amount of improvements here. And I think the product that's on offer in Indianapolis now, in a lot of ways, is at par with what you would get in a lot of similar cities uh, out there. Like, like go to a Nashville we don't have to be ashamed, I think, of, you know, the quality of the food or a lot of other things uh, versus that city. It's, it's interesting because you're, um, it, it's been great to have you back in town because, and we'll get into this, you bring a very broad perspective, having studied a lot of cities, lived in a lot of cities, and your new perspective reflects something that I want to believe about Indianapolis. Uh, of course, the city getting better, but this idea, particularly in um, food, but also in accessibility, that it's um, these are things that people can enjoy, but that are accessible to anybody. You don't just have to be, you know, middle and and middle upper class to appreciate them. I feel like that that's changed. It was what recently is as recently as maybe ten years ago. There was an article called Chain City about how chain restaurants test their stuff in Indianapolis, which is true, which has happened for a long time. And I think it's really, as far as I know, since like 2010, 2011, the emergence of a lot of these high-end retail, but also really creative restaurants, but they're priced at a level that, you know, the, a normal, you know, person, um, anybody, you know, uh, in, in the neighborhood could walk in and enjoy it. It doesn't just serve the, right. the wealthy, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I think there probably is, if, if you were really into molecular gastronomy or like, fine French, you know, dining. Maybe there's not as many options here. That's just probably not here, but, you know, I'm not looking to spend $600 on dinner if I can avoid it, yeah. sort of thing. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I think I think here a lot of it is it's good. It's not all cheap, but I think there actually are very good options. And one of the things I always complained about New York, you know, there's this stereotype from all the movies of the New York diner, and you think, oh, it's this great old institution. New York diners are terrible. I mean, they are just <laughs> terrible. The food is bad. Uh, you know, I order like a, uh, you know, a turkey club sandwich and there's not enough water, you know, in the place for me to wash that dry thing down with. And then I go to like Pepe's Grill and Fountain Square. I was like, wow, this is actually, it's good. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I haven't had a food, like diner style food like this. Yeah. And it's quality since I left Indianapolis. So it's, it's, yeah, that's great. Well, I want to um, start in the beginning because I know you grew up in a small town in Southern Indiana and, um, and I'm, I'm interested, I grew up in a small town, not as small as that. My town was about 4,500 people in Southern Illinois. But one thing I think that you and I have in common, although you take it to a different level is this fascination about cities and what makes them work. And I'm just curious, um, about what, 
what was it from your small town upbringing that where where you, what experience, did you have an experience where you made that connection and you became fascinated with with cities having grown up in a very rural area? Yeah. Well, I think one thing is different uh, from where you grew up. I, I'm not sure exactly where in Southern Illinois it was, but um, I lived in a rural area, but it wasn't remote. So Harrison County it would be like growing up in Shelby County. We, we were a rural county, but we were metropolitan, and so most people in Harrison County uh, worked in Louisville, Kentucky, which was like a 45 minute drive. So in 45 minutes, we could be in a you know a region of more than you know, a metro of more than a million people, right, in the downtown of that kind of a of the city. And I had relatives in the south end of Louisville and spent time. So it wasn't like I had no experience of the city, uh, but I will say it was sort of a it was sort of a quasi off the grid uh, upbringing, right? We didn't have the internet back then, and uh, so. Uh, you didn't have really cable out there. So you had like whatever over-the-air TV stations you could pull in with your rabbit ears. Um, we had a party line telephone. Uh, we had a gravel, we lived on a gravel road. There was no water service available, so we got our water out of a cistern. You had to burn your trash in a 55-gallon drum because there was no trash pickup. Well, now they put a casino in Harrison County. as one of the wealthiest counties in terms of the, the public sector. They got so much money, they don't know what to do with it. And, and so they're just like, you know, every every road there is like nicer than any state highway. Uh, so they destroyed the mythology of my youth, uh, as I like to say. If you go back there, no one would ever believe it. So you, you like talk about you're from this rustic area. What's the golf course out at the end of your lane that you grew up on? Uh, uh, but, you know, but it was sort of like it was sort of like a, a classic. Uh, I think I grew up at sort of the tail end of like genuine rural America of like things like party line telephones and no water service and you were just sort of um, a little off the grid, um, and and it was um, you know, it was sort of a working class, definitely a very working class uh, environment. There were people there that had like good incomes, worked at like Fords or things like that, uh, but you know, other than like a little nicer pickup truck or somebody drove a Mustang, it wasn't this this place where there's like a, a, a kind of people living a luxury lifestyle. Everybody sort of lived the same, very egalitarian, very kind of middle class, working class um, ethos. And to some extent, I, I maybe I don't want to call it idyllic, but it was the era before the opioid crisis. We didn't have the drugs that that are there now, and you know there were still you know in the seventies and eighties when I was growing up, you know the kind of the the first wave of divorce had happened, but it was still mostly intact families. And a little, so I got a little bit of a picture of what kind of America was like for the previous generations, the very tail end of that. I don't think that anything. Uh, I don't know exactly that I became fascinated by cities per se, maybe a little bit uh, there. But one thing I got very interested in was road construction. And I think maybe like a lot of younger uh, boys, I was fascinated by construction equipment and road construction. So I started studying road construction. And, um, you know, and I, I studied all kinds of weird things like bank mergers and things of that nature. But, um, but road construction was really my entree into the urbanism space because I started thinking, well, why did they pick these projects? How does it take so long? How are they funded? Um, and so I got very interested in transportation. What really got me on cities, I went to IU, and then I got a job in Chicago with a consulting company. Sort of by accident, I didn't necessarily want to end up in Chicago, but they were hiring a lot of people there, and everybody else kind of wanted to go there. And so I'm like, oh, I guess I should go there. And... Yeah, that was really a hugely transformational experience for me. For a lot of people, college is this time of like self-discovery and 
personal liberation and growth and just life change. That was not that for me. I mean, I, IU was, you know, it was, it was a fine place, but it really wasn't transformational. But moving to Chicago was really transformational. So I got very interested in cities then, very interested in public transit. My first foray into transit riding was actually in the late 90s. I wrote a, uh, a uh, weekly uh, newsletter. It was really an, we call it an electronic newsletter. Uh, but it was mostly by email and through Usenet groups um, uh, about the Chicago Transit Authority and all what was going on with that. So I was, I was very interested in that. And then, of course, from there, everything is connected, transportation, land use, economy. And it, it was really just something where I just got very, very, very interested in the city through my experiences in Chicago, um, which was really – it was a great experience for me. I, you know, I, I don't like to hate on any place that I've lived. I think there's great – this is one of the things I, I always say. There's plenty of great cities in America. There's not like two or three great cities in America. There's a lot of great places yeah. to live in America. Uh, but that was really kind of how I got into cities. I sort of ended up in a city by accident and just my just by nature insatiably curious thing that was sort of tr- glommed on through transportation that really set the stage for me. And your your day job, you were working at, I guess, what's now Accenture yep. Consulting. Is that right? Um, so... Um, there are a couple things, and and we'll get, I, I I do want to ask you about the Urbano file and and your blog and how that and how you built an audience. But there were there are two things that I think about as I think about your work over the last couple decades. One is you, this ability that you have to go deeper, uh, you know, and a, um, uh, a a patience and a um, a drive to go deeper into the numbers the way I think really only at a level of depth that really only academics go to. And then, but then I also think about storytelling. You're able to take a lot of um, uh, complex data and kind of synthesize it into a story and make it, uh, and make it able to be understood by just casual observers. I think that, and I know that's a big part of why you, you developed this audience where, you know, that kind of, Data analysis and storytelling. Where where do those things come from? If we if we looked at your upbringing in Southern Indiana, mm. where are the seeds of those um, th- those qualities? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. That's what just that's basically what consultants do. <laughs> you know, so yeah. I think that really comes from my consulting heritage, and I probably did have an orientation toward, towards it. So I was actually a finance major at uh, at the Kelly School undergrad. Yeah, and so I, I learned about finance and accounting there. I also um, really got into computers and software development there. And uh, that's one reason I went to Accenture, which did a lot of technology consulting. I did a lot of technology work there. Um, and so that gives it there's a certain analytical frame that comes from that. Uh, but fundamentally, that's sort of what consultants do. I always said about this never really resonated with people when I would tell it to them. But uh, I always say what I basically do is take the tools, techniques, and disciplines of tier one management consulting and apply them to the problem of the city treat the city as uh, a client because the professional services uh, organizations that serve cities, in my view, were very, uh, traditionally they were very siloed and they were very specialized technical practitioners yep. in a lot of ways. So architects design buildings, civil engineers design roads, planners you know, do planning and zoning codes, you know, teachers or teachers like an educational this. There are these bespoke economic development groups, and I would never compete with them on the technical side of what they do. If you want to go deep into like the minutia of planning and zoning, you're not going to ask me about that. 
but what I do is, is bring this sort of, um, uh, I try to take a more C-suite approach and say, you know, we talk about like customer segments and brand and talent and the sorts of things that CEOs care about every day in their company and really look at the city in that manner uh, and how all of these things integrate together to create overall civic success. So I think a lot of what I do with, with my work is similar to what a, um, you know, a consultant would do uh, for a company, yeah. you know, write, writing a report on, on some aspect of it. And so I just sort of was like you know, treating the, the city as if it were a client uh, working on yeah. it. It's interesting because I think you're right. Um, in a lot of these city departments, planning, transportation, you find people with a lot of tech and technical acumen. I think you also find people who are there because of political relationships. And, and that's, I, I've never thought about this before. Your skill set is kind of neither. You're neither kind of that, the, the, the technical planner nor the political appointee. Um, I noticed that both categories of people sometimes will cite your work to try to prove their point. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's if that's always been happening, yeah. but again, there's nothing wrong with you know political appointees because we have to be able to uh, you know politics is essentially the art of reconciling you know divergent interests and conflict. Basically, how do we reconcile conflict in our society in a way? And you need people who are really good at doing that, and. Um, and so I don't, I don't, I don't begrudge that, them that thing, but that's a different skill set uh, and a different approach. So I think you need these different kinds of groups and different kinds of skills um, doing that. I'll say, you know, in general, kind of the kind of the management consultants who would do work for um, companies, by and large, don't do work for cities because cities can't pay them enough to make it worthwhile. So, like New York City, sometimes they'll hire McKinsey uh, or Chicago. Um, Chicago actually gets a ton of free consulting. From a lot of uh, companies Pacific up Consultants there. Alliance. There's a Pacific Consulting Alliance, yeah. but also um, uh, different ones uh, like Boston Consulting Group takes a lot of their civic development dollars and basically does pro bono work um, uh, for the city. And I think some of those firms up there, um, so, so some of it's free uh, and, you know, some of it is, you know, when you have a city that's so severely financial distressed, it's a bad perception if you're taking massive fees and paying them to consultants. So some of these very large cities have been able to, to hire those kinds of companies but fundamentally smaller ones didn't. And so um, I wanted to look at that. And I sort of looked at it from a Midwest perspective uh, as well, which I thought was, was kind of very unique. I took some of my own advice, and we could talk about this with your band. I, thought I took some of my own advice in, um, in building out that platform. Yeah, so this, this, this is great because it's, it's filling in some gaps for me. I, you know, I, I've, I've followed your work for at least 15 years, but it's filling in some gaps for me. And um, – if you were constructing the timeline or the story from how you got from this um, digital newsletter about Chicago Transit Authority to Urbanophile, um, where you're writing more broadly about the development of cities and economic development of cities, much going beyond um, transportation and infrastructure, uh, what's that path? Yeah, well, there was no really direct path. I, I did the, um, the uh, newsletter about Chicago Transit for, for three years. And again, it was it was it was well received and well well written, but it was also an era before kind of the modern internet distribution channels really allowed it to to, to blow up. I started the Urbana file at the very end of two thousand six. The first post was uh, you know December twenty six two thousand six, but it really came out of um, I was working uh, you know, doing an internal assignment at Accenture, and when I was there, I was I found myself getting involved in uh, I'd always been an internet message board junkie. 
So going back to the old Usenet news groups, when I was a college student at IU, and, and before the web had even been invented, I'd sort of been a message board junkie. And uh, now they have these web, all these web message boards, one of which uh, was called Skyscraper City. And there were forums there for like Chicago, Indianapolis. So I started getting in, in arguments with people on there um, about different urban development issues. And I found myself typing these really long uh, posts talking about not only, you know, kind of like why I felt a certain way on a topic. And, and then I realized they're just going to scroll off the, the edge of the page, then they'll be gone and nobody will ever see them again. I should put that in a blog. And I debated doing it for a very long time because I'm like, I'm going to run out of things to say. That's always a perpetual worry, I think, as a writer, am I going to run out of things to say? Uh, but I finally started it, and it immediately um, it immediately acquired a pretty large audience. Now, I originally, it was called the Urbanophile and, I, and uh, the Lover of Cities. Um, I'd actually registered that domain uh, in 1996, um, really as a personal website originally, uh, and... It was really because I think the original domain I wanted wasn't available. I couldn't, I couldn't think of a domain, and I finally came up. I, I kind of coined that term, and uh, I published it as just as that as a pseudonym. I didn't use my real name on it, um, and uh, you know. But to say it rapidly acquired an audience. I think maybe the skyscraper city people helped spread it around, and uh, I just it just spread around by word of mouth, and um, a lot of it. Uh, came out of the Indianapolis discussion boards on Skyscraper City. I was still living in Chicago at the time, but a lot of the early stuff had an Indianapolis focus on it for that reason, and um, it, it really it really resonated here. But I made a I made a choice that uh, I thought turned out to be a very good one. I, mean, I would love to say it was super 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 strategic. I think uh, you know much like with the indie sports strategy, I think we can go back and claim we always wanted to conquer the world, but I think we made evolutionary decisions along the way. But one of the things that I did was I didn't run it as a city site. I said I'm going to look at all Midwest cities uh, that have a million people or more in their metropolitan area, and there were like 12 of them. And I said I'm going to look at these cities because, and here's really my main thesis: all of the discussions, and this is still true, by the way. All of the discussions and all the ideas about what cities should be and what they should be doing originate on the coasts. They originate in Portland. The answer is, at that age era, the answer was always be more like Portland. And everybody would always say that. Every, every city took a trip to Portland, and they came back, and they said, oh, my gosh, we have to have a light rail line. We have to do this. We have to do that. Um, and so the, the, everything was coming out of these cities. And I'm like, your cities in the Midwest are completely unlike these coastal cities in terms of their demographics, their history, their culture, their economy, their built form, the climate. And I really felt that there was no indigenous R&D about Midwestern cities on their own terms. What should these places be doing based on their own unique history? And I still think it's tremendously under, there's a tremendous lack of that. Yeah, um, but I, I, I that was kind of what I wanted to do. But the fact that I didn't make it a city blog and I made it a regional blog really enabled me to attract a much larger yeah um, audience than I think a lot of other places I, you know, did. I, I became aware this um, of this deficit, if you want to call it that, or this imbalance around that time. Now it's probably two thousand seven, eight, nine when I'm working for the the city of Indianapolis, and I think it's. Um, I think it's both a, maybe a, um, 
it would be easy to say inferiority complex, okay? Some people would say this Midwestern inferiority complex. Some people would say lack of imagination or mythology. Some people would also say, though, you can look at systems. And the thing that I, that I, did, that I did recognize working for a city government in Indianapolis and going to places like Portland, like Seattle, though, there's a, there is a different approach we, we, we didn't have the, the depth of um, skill and maybe creativity at like um, transportation planning, things like that. And I know, and, and, and this, is, this is making sense because you, you regularly write about city infrastructure and how it's bigger than just, you know, concrete and, mm-hmm. and paving, things like that. But um, I, I, feel like the, I feel like maybe the scales have tipped a little bit more back to Midwestern cities. But at, so what is it? Is it, is it, my, my question is, is it, is it that imagination and mythology or is it skill or is it both or is it something else? What do you mean by the scales tip back to the middle? I feel like, I feel like, I feel like there's a, with, with um, Midwestern cities, Indianapolis with mass transit, Cincinnati with the streetcar, there's been um, maybe Midwestern cities have developed more of that skill set around, um, uh, you know, planning transportation, things like that, where, where that may have been lacking 15 years ago and have gotten better, maybe not in a way that competes against coastal cities. But does that, does that connect yeah. with your? Yeah, I, w- I would say uh, I actually do think Indianapolis is a very interesting model in that it was one of the cities, one of the few cities where there was a lot of policy innovation. And in fact, uh, I'll plug my new uh, publication for the chamber here called Indy Forward, uh, which is available on Medium. You can Google for it. I just wrote a piece for that that's not yet up. Uh, hopefully it will be posted um, uh, once it goes through the process uh, by the time this comes out. But really about how Indianapolis is a city with a long track record of policy innovation. Uh, Unigov it was not the first city-county merger, but there are not that many large cities in the United States that had city-county mergers. That was the first one. You can think about the sports strategy. Indianapolis created the first sports commission in America it created this. It basically, the Olympics had always been something that cities had seen as a sort of a transformational thing for their city or country. But other than Olympics, Indianapolis basically invented the idea that sports could be an economic development engine for the city. And so it's, it created essentially a semi-fortress industry in that that's been sustained over 30, 40 years and did some incredibly bold things. Uh, building the Hoosier Dome without a team to play in it in 1983, that's crazy, right? And then what do you know? The Colts land there. No one could ever do the build it and they will come today. No, it, it just doesn't. It just doesn't happen like right. that. Or it happens in kind of a, a kind of kind of a little bit of a freak. Like I think that the Oklahoma City Thunder ended up in an arena that was built, but because of Hurricane Katrina, so it was, it was some crazy. There's some crazy scenario there, but you just can't do that today. And then again, you go through to uh, the Goldsmith era and Indianapolis seen as this privatization leader, really essentially the idea that you could improve quality of services and reduce costs through privatization came out of, came out of that. And then here today, the Indy Cultural Trail, um, the way that uh, the, especially the suburban communities have innovated with roundabouts. I mean, Indianapolis is basically the roundabout capital uh, of the country. And now I think that the bus system here, I, I think that the transit plan in Indianapolis is a great example of this city doing something that is very appropriate yep. to this market and this size, but is also ambitious and integrates um, 
you know, just flat out running more buses with a BRT, with network, with a new transit center, with a new overall bus network, a new fare system, and really trying to just essentially take this thing up, you know, level up public transit in the city. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I actually think there have been a lot of public, and that doesn't even touch what the state did with the toll road leads and a lot of other things. So yeah. I think there's been a lot of innovation here. It wasn't necessarily, though, in the areas that it was on the coast. And when things happen in the Midwest, it's like um, there is a sense in which if you're anointed one of the, the chosen select cool cities, the things that you do just automatically get more press. They get more yep. whatever. Um, and uh, so uh, there is a sense in which I think Indianapolis probably should have gotten more credit for, for what, it, what it did. But those are the sorts of things that I think are what I talk about, like indigenous R&D. What should we do here? that's going to be different than what everybody else is yeah. doing that really is right for us and helps us compete. And so, um, and when you say indigenous R and D, you're not just, you're meaning it's an, it, it, it could extend to industry, but it's not just industry it could extend to placemaking, but not just placemaking it could extend to R and it's R and D about culture, uh, arts and music it, it, yeah. it, it kind of across the board. Is that, well, I think there's a lot of that. But I mean, I was really sort of about talking about policy, I guess, okay, policy yeah. R and D, yeah. but you can think of it in, in Many other ways you could yeah. think about, uh, you know, is the tech industry here going to look like the tech industry in San Francisco? Probably not. It's going to be different. So the culture is different. So thinking about things that are, how do you work with, not against the, the local grain yeah. of the culture? So, for example, this is a city, I mean, there are some areas where, where indie is like literally defines the edge of the spectrum. One of them is the way that it's, so heavily relied on the private sector to do things. It's like it's the only zoo in the country that doesn't get tax support. I don't know if there's another museum in the country that doesn't get tax support like the IMA. In Metro Detroit, for example, the counties there just reapproved a $25 million a year tax levy to support the Detroit Institute of the Arts. The idea that there would be a, a regional arts tax is just off the table here. Yeah. And so I think, though... The generosity, uh, the Lilly Endowment, yeah. too, here. So, it's so that's the second so largest so private foundation in yeah. the country, yeah. So a lot of that has happened. And so what has happened, I think, is we've been able to create things that work within that model. I think the zoo's done a very good job, for example. And uh, I think one of their great innovations um, was creating this Indianapolis Prize for uh, you know Outstanding Achievement in Animal yep. Conservation. It's a way to get your name out there globally, uh, it was there was nothing like this. They created it, similar to how the international violin competition yep. was was created. American Pianist Association yep. relocating yep. here from New York City as well. Yeah. yeah, thinking about those things where like we found it, we found it, and you know you think about a lot of zoos. I mean, I, yeah, I think the Indianapolis Zoo actually is involved in conservation in a way that you know it's not just about animals for the kids to see. There yep. actually is a lot of animal conservation work happening there, and I think the way the cultural trail was set up with essentially under this almost like this conservancy model um, is a way that, you know, uh, we've been able to design a governance structure and a maintenance structure that kind of works with the local culture yeah. and doesn't just say, because you went to the, the if you went to the, um, you know, the, the coast and say, well, what should we do? They'd say, well, you know, you should, obviously you should have a $25 million a year arts tax. Well, that's not very helpful <laughs> because yeah. we're not going to have a $25 million a year arts tax. So thinking about like how, um, you know, we've done much more through the private sector, through the philanthropic sector uh, than, than other cities. And, and so I think we just have to recognize that's the local culture. Yeah. How, do, how, do you, how, do you create, how do you create innovation within that culture that works? In, 
one thing that I got out of reading the Urbanophile before I knew you really um, was in focusing on these Midwest cities. It was almost the idea that if you're in Indianapolis and you really believe in Indianapolis, there's this, um, it's almost not, uh, an implication that you should kind of root for the other Midwestern cities mm-hmm. that comes across. And, um, you know, you've written a lot on Cincinnati. In fact, I, we took a family vacation to Cincinnati three years ago that I think was inspired by reading your mm-hmm. work about Cincinnati and in which you said, you made the argument, I'm paraphrasing, Cincinnati's got the physical assets, um, but Cincinnati, based on its physical assets alone, is one. It could be one of the best American cities. You've written a lot yeah. about cities like Pittsburgh, but I guess there, I guess there's almost this this idea that hey, the Midwest could really work together, and and instead of instead of fighting against each other, it's got a lot in common, and and these cities could work together to sort of elevate this region. Is that is that a something that you believe in? Because it comes across from the the Urbanophile. Well, certainly from. Uh a regional nothing would help Indianapolis be more successful than the perception of the Midwest as a region changing. And that's not going to change with just the idea that Indianapolis is going to be the, there was the old diamond of the Rust Belt. Well, it's not good to be the diamond of the Rust Belt. You don't want to be the best house on a bad block. Uh, it's better to be the worst house on a good block than the, wor- the best house on a bad block. And so, uh, I, I think you see the kind of the folly of that go-it-alone approach in Chicago, which if you go to Chicago, um, it's full of people who rolled in off the farms from the Midwest, like me. And uh, I, I don't know who made this quip originally, uh, but it's very true. Contempt for where you came from is the signature attribute of the East. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's this sense of now, now they think they've made it to, they've hit the big time, and they like to look down their noses at the rest of the Midwest and they thought, hey, we're Global City Chicago. We don't, we don't need, we're not like the Midwest. We did, a lot of times, even today, there was a, there was a thing on um, uh, their public radio station. It was about, is Chicago Midwestern? They like to almost deny that they're in the Midwest, deny that they're in Illinois. Well, unfortunately for them, they are in Illinois. And the corruption and the mismanagement and the financial disaster of Illinois weighs very heavily upon them. And one of the biggest reasons that they're Chicago is not as uh, highly ranked and regarded as these coastal cities is because it is the capital of a region that is underperformed. If this region were a very, very prosperous region, Chicago would probably be seen like a Boston uh, or one of those things. So I think this idea that you'll just be the only, we'll be the own, we'll be this island of success and, uh, you know, we'll row away from the wreck of the ship as it comes on doesn't work. So we need multiple cities to succeed. We need Columbus, Ohio to succeed, Kansas City. Madison. We need these places to be successful because then you start getting multiple success stories in the region. It starts to change the whole regional narrative. Now, having said that, I still want to be the success first yeah, <laughs> ahead of those absolutely. other people. I, I, not to say that I'm not going to be competitive. Now, I will say what, what could be done um, at the city level to cooperate? I don't necessarily know that like uh, Indianapolis and Cincinnati and Louisville are going to collaborate together. I think there's a ton that could be done at the state levels. Um, I, I think the biggest thing that, that needs to change at the state level is there's this whole, I mean, pretty much every Midwest state's economic develop, development strategy is going to be, we're going to pillage Illinois, you know, it, it, and that's just, that's just such a, you know, it's kind of, I call it beggar thy neighbor economic development. The competition is not Illinois. The competition is global. Yeah. And if, if you're focused on just beating, I think, I think Indiana, 
one of the things Indiana's had for a long time is it is we're going to be the best house on the bad block. I look at the tax rates in Michigan. Uh, I looked at, you know, Michigan had the worst decade of, you know, in 2000s of any state. Ohio, Kentucky, and their yep. pension. Illinois, I'm like, I, I know how I'm going to beat these guys. And, yes, you can get some people relocate here, but ultimately that's like a, a very limited vision of success. So yep. I'd like to see these Midwest states stop trying to outbid each other on incentives. And I also think, uh, you know, I think there is how it's done. There, there should be essentially a Midwest think tank. There should be a Midwest version of the Brookings Institution that is essentially focused yeah. on bringing the best scholars for this region together to look at it. The, the one institution that tries to do that is the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, but it's really an ill fit for an organization that's much more like the Council on Foreign Relations. Yeah. So there should be something like that. Um, Richard Longworth, uh, who, who worked there, he always wanted a Midwest newspaper. I think the ship has sailed on that one. Uh, is he caught in the middle? Is that yeah, the he book? wrote caught. He wrote caught yeah. in the middle, and uh, he he also wrote a book called Global Squeeze. In 1996, everything that's happening now economically, um, the rise of populism, two tier economy, even the gig economy, he predicted it all. A very very smart man. Uh, but I think we need to start doing that. We also need to be looking at these Big Ten schools, and seeing um, maybe not every Big Ten school needs to, to try to be the best at everything, uh, and focus on what they do well. Yeah. To create some more kind of regional champions. So right now we have a lot of assets in the Midwest, but all these states are just competing with each other and taking action completely apart from each other. I think there should be collaboration on, on infrastructure around interstate highway systems and things like that. And yeah. so um, how can we have a, you know, and, you know, there was some, there was some uh, look, look at this. INDOT actually led a study on this is how do we improve I-70 all the way from Pittsburgh through to Kansas City? Yeah. How do we make that happen? And and how do we, those are those are the sorts of things that are important for regional competitiveness yeah. that we could be doing. I think about a couple of things because I I've been pretty critical of the let's pilfer Illinois mm -hmm. strategy. I feel like if if a if if any company decides to hop the state line and voluntarily come to Indiana, we'd be fools not to accommodate them. However, I've had so many individuals from East and West Coast tell me, you know, we really think about the Midwest as a set. We think about the Midwest as a as a as a region, and um, you know if if we're going to look at if we're going to look at Indianapolis, it makes us more likely we're going to look at Columbus, Ohio, not less. You know, if right. we're already looking at Chicago, it makes it more likely we're going to be looking at Indianapolis. And the other thing I think about in trying to get over some of this inferiority complex, maybe it maybe also might be just a cultural humility that exists in the Midwest. When you overlay the number of Nobel Prize winners, when you overlay the number of elite um, uh, engineering institutions, when you think about what our you know mutual friend Michael Kaufman talks about operationalizing production, so mm -hmm. like in a virtual world, yeah. where are people really working with the elements, you know, with their hands? That's all here, and we don't think about it that way. And in, in thinking about the you know, the, the thinking about the Midwest as a, as a big region where we could have this kind of intercity cooperation. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's uh, I think we have a great, we have a great collection of assets. We have a good collection of assets in the state, but we also have a great collection across the region. Um, but, you know, people do think of the West coast as a region. Yeah. Right. People in, um, you know, Longworth wrote about this in his book, the South, there's this idea of the South as a region with like a shared history and a shared culture and all, all these like journals about the South and like 
everybody's there's a concept of the South. There's a concept of New England, right, as a region. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, uh, I think it was Joel Garreau who uh, called the West Coast like Ecotopia or something like that. Yeah. And it's like this idea that like there's a coastal, there's a sort of West Coast um, thing, but the Midwest has always been a little more amorphous in its identity, I think, and there's very, very little cohesion. I mean, I, he talked about basically there are no, and I think a little, again, I think some of this has changed. There was no, like, Journal of Midwest Studies. Yeah. There's no Midwest think tank. There's no Midwest news. There's no self-consciously regional um, thinking about this region and yeah. its nature. And, again, that's improving a little bit. Um, but I think the key, the key is to be able to do it in a way that thinks about us kind of on our own terms. And, yeah. and um, you know, I, th- I do think there's a, you know, uh, Tocqueville you know, noted that the South was the most uh, aristocratic region of the country in all the good and bad ways of that. But one of the things that they, they have is essentially a kind of a chauvinistic self-regard or an aristocratic self-regard about their, about their, their, their culture that um, I think is one of the reasons that, um, that they've done well. Uh, in that they're they're not afraid to just be they're unapologetic about who they are. They actually like who they are. Yeah. Even when I would say it's like these people brag about their cities, even when there's objectively nothing to brag about. Yeah. And it's not just like uh, it's not just like in the um, uh, you know we're a world class city and like bragging about something that's like kind of cringeworthy inducing. It's almost like it's sort of like the Texas swagger. Think about how Texas Texans feel about Texas. Yeah. Right. And Frankly, the stereotypes of Texas are not that much different than the stereotypes of, of Indiana in a lot of ways, yeah. like pickup trucks and guns and like, you know, all, right. all these crazy things. And so, so it's like, it's, it's crazy. I'm opposed to those things. Uh, but the key is, it's like, oh, they're so much, but they, they're so proud yeah. of Texas. And it's like, they're proud of everything about their state yeah. in a way that none of these Midwestern states yeah. are. And that that's one of the big differences. And I think probably it comes from, Again, it comes from kind of the history. A lot of it comes from the history, and um, um, it, but you know we were we were settled. You know, Indiana was settled. Uh, different groups of people, but like, there were a lot of Quakers that came to Indiana. Yeah. You know, there were a lot of a lot of Germans came to yeah. Indiana. Places a lot of Scotch Irish. Yeah. Well, you know, the Scots Irish are mostly in the in the southern part of the state. Yeah, a little more southern, but like you know, it, it's like the Midwest is more Northern European. Yes, there are some. You know, there's some Central European other things, but yeah. like that's a more it's a more egalitarian, um, more egalitarian culture versus you know, like for example, I, I grew up near Louisville, so I know Louisville well. Louisville is a two tier society, like a lot of southern cities. You have sort of the elite, yeah. and you have everybody else, and and th- you don't we don't have a two tier society here in, in the way that these other places do, yeah. uh, and that's good and that's good and it's bad. Um, I think. Um, I think the things that uh, that that have, cha- that have been challenging somewhat for the Midwest in that regard is, um, you know, kind of the unapologetic pursuit of excellence. When you say you want to be like today, we're in this sort of like, uh, you know, Richard Florida calls it winner take all urbanism or winner take most. We're like the rewards of being number one are like exponentially greater than the rewards of being number five. Why is Pittsburgh going cr- crazy right now? Because Carnegie Mellon is number one. Yeah. It's like the number one computer science program in the United States. So being number one, yeah. if you if you are the best in the world at something, people will beat a path to your door. They don't care about 
any of the other things that people care about. When you have the best, and we're not always in that situation of saying we have to be the best. Jack Welch, who just uh, passed away, he gets a lot of criticism today, but he was really, I think, in a lot of ways, uh, very prescient about the nature of the world. One of his famous dictums was, I only want to be in a business if I could be number one or number two. And like he sold off anything he couldn't be number one or number two in because he's like, everything is collapsing into a two-tier model. So we see that with like Home Depot and Lowe's, you know, CVS and Walgreens, AT&T and Verizon. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't other players, but essentially two dominant players are in a lot of these industries, Walmart and Target. And then we'll see what happens with, you know, the online with like the Amazon and, and the internet seems to be a, a one. It's like a winner take off. So yeah. thinking about, we have to have this a concept that's a little, that's been a little, uh, and then this is, you know, it's hard to change your kind of cultural DNA. Yep. This is one where, having to have this mentality of we can't just we can't just be good enough we can't just be a little bit better than average we have to think you got to win you got to think like we have to be like there's got to be things we're like the best in or like certainly in the top handful yeah because that is what is being rewarded in the market today yeah um i think it was uh, the the economist tyler cowan he wrote a book about that called average is over there's no more average yep. you know the, the middle is eroding so you're going to be one of the winners one of the losers um, again, Enrico Moretti calls it the great divergence. And so we need to be thinking about pedaling very, very hard to make sure we're, we're in one of the winners, which means we don't have to be the best in everything. Yep. But we had to have things wh- that we do better than anybody else. Like nothing, you know, nothing helps build your industry. I think like internet marketing has been one of the things that we've become, not the sole center of the country, but like a place where like there's a lot of expertise here. And you even see companies in the space that aren't based here put a presence enough in Indianapolis because there's a lot going on here yeah. and there's an ecosystem around Salesforce. And so I think about that. You have to, we have to have areas where we are on the leading edge and we have unique expertise. Yeah. And, you know, I'd like to say we can do that in the policy area too. We're not going to be able to uh, afford like a plus everything, but where, where are we going to pl- pick our bets? We did that with sports. We're going to be the best in the world at yeah. sports. We're going to redefine your event. If you bring it to our city, that's a brand promise delivered like yep. sports is a promise delivered. And so I think we have to think about what are those things we do the best and, and, um, and do, do a lot of that. That's one of the things that, ch- that is a challenge, not just here, but, uh, but all over the Midwest. Even in, even in Chicago, they, um, I, you know, I think they're sometimes content to be the second city, if you know what I mean, yeah. as opposed to being the first city of something. So I struggle with this um, question about focus and and being the best and our city and region being the best in certain things and you can use sports as a great example you can take the diversity of our life sciences cluster in indianapolis you have the makings of that you have the makings of it in our marketing tech cluster mm-hmm. and and in other industries um and 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 when you when you talk about the state dynamics and the cities and how being the best, I have a, I have a bias. I have developed a bias now, and that is that um, the state politics and the local politics have to at least create a space where the public sector and the private sector and, let's say, philanthropy and academia can collaborate and really focus and double and triple down on your strengths. Mm-hmm. If you want to, I'm going with your, with your line of logic if you want to be the best. And I'll express this. I think this is best expressed through a recent, um, a quick story. I was... Um, talking to a group of young leaders from their communities around Indiana. So I'm going to say in their twenties 
And it was probably at least half Indianapolis and then half was other communities around Indiana. And I was pretty, I was pretty amped up about how Indianapolis and the suburbs need to collaborate so that we can really compete against Nashville and Denver and Austin. And we need to compete on talent and we need to compete on infrastructure. And, and if we really want to compete with the best and this young woman who has made the decision to um, relocate back to her small town and be a leader in a small town um, was was kind of, um, I don't want to say taking offense, but pretty close. Basically didn't like how charged kind of my my talk was saying that it sound it, it it was it sounded like you know I didn't care about rural Indiana and rural I don't think she realizes I'm from a very small town mm-hmm. you know I'm, I'm now of course here in Indianapolis but I'm actually from a very small town I'm pretty sympathetic to that and it I think to I'm I'm always inspired by your um your kind of urging community leaders to to really focus on where we're the best. But then, as you know, we face every day um, a political dynamic which is increasingly anti-metro and can feel like an uphill battle. And it's and it's well-intentioned elected officials whose sentiments are a lot like this young woman who's kind of take mm-hmm. who is sort of taking issue with my rah 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 indie region indie region. Um, but how, you know, you you've you've written about the state policy framework, and I know I'm opening up a whole uh, um, a whole can of worms, but um, uh, do you do you see can 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 state legislatures adapt to to this way of thinking? Yeah, uh, Harrison Oldman, who used to be the editor of Nuvo back in the day, uh, I think he was the one that always had this uh, saying that uh, Indiana is America's you know has America's worst state legislature, and I'm like, well, let me tell you, um, as somebody who lived in Illinois and who lived in Rhode Island and who lived in New York, let me tell you, I don't think you're even going to rank, like, above fourth worst in that, in that four group of cities. I was, uh, I was in Rhode Island. Uh, after I, right after I left Rhode Island, I came back to speak to their, uh, their House of Representatives. Uh, they did a little economic development conference there, and it was a very nice conference, and I spoke there with a very senior executive from CVS, and we had a very nice lunch with the Speaker of the House, uh, Gordon Fox, and then two weeks later, I get an alert. Gordon Fox arrested by the feds in a bribery scam. So, um, you know, I think state legislatures are always a punching bag of places. And, and if politics is the art of, you know, reconciling conflicts, one of the things that happens is that state legislatures are – Places where Indiana is not really an economic geography, right? In the sense that metropolitan Indianapolis is an economic geography. Think about Illinois or New York, where you have these like big global cities and then like a very rural areas. Coming up with a policy, I mean, most state constitutions require uniform laws. I know there's many, many ways to kind of game and get around that. Um, you know, you don't really need uniform laws in a place with very diverse economies and very diverse states. And so Indiana is a state that has um, a, a lot of diversity with, within its region. You know, northwest Indiana is very different from Harrison County. So these rural areas and urban areas are very different. Fort Wayne, South Bend, Evansville have very different uh, opportunity and challenge sets than Indianapolis does. And so I think that the, the pressure on the legislature to try to reconcile that is much more difficult than it is in, uh, say, a metropolitan region, where I think there's much more alignment of, of interests. 
Um, so, uh, you know, I like to try to say that. And I think at, at, at its best, healthy tension with the state legislature can be can be a positive. I think that the the process with the legislature uh, and and the Indianapolis Transit Plan, frankly, put together a very appropriate, cost effective plan for the city. We probably kept maybe kept us from overspending on tech, like rail technology is probably a bad fit. I've written that from the very beginning. Rail technology is bad here. May have been a lot more pressure to do very very expensive rail. The first line wouldn't be opening for seven more years. So I think at, at its best, it can be. It could be healthy. Now, having said all that, you know, I would say there's definitely a divergence between the views of the Indiana General Assembly and the metropolitan leaders in, in Indianapolis and also in places like Lafayette and Bloomington and probably some of the other states' metro centers in that, um, you, you know, I think the vision of the, of the state legislature has been much more what I call a low-road vision. It's about we need to have the lowest cost, the least regulation, the lowest taxes, you know, less government, and that is going to be the basis on which we compete and how we raid Illinois businesses to come here. Whereas I think the metropolitan, um, the metropolitan regions are thinking about how can we compete nationally for talent? How can we have, uh, you know, higher wage, higher value businesses? How can we have much more technology startups, things like that, trying to build a much higher end economy, trying to be on essentially the is that we're starting into a two-tier economy, essentially, and the places like Indianapolis say we want to be in kind of the we want to be in the high tier, the high income tier, and the state has basically said we're going to be in the, we're going to be in the low income tier, yeah. which is why the, the wages and the incomes are extremely low yeah. in Indiana. It's producing a lot of low wage jobs, and so I think there is a fundamental kind of conflict of vision there between what the state legis how they see the world. Yeah. And, and the alignments there and how, how we, you know, kind of maybe how the metro areas see the world. And, um, you know, I would submit that I think that the metro areas are right on that. But again, I don't I would not want to impose a metro solution on rural Indiana. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that's that would not be a, a good fit either. Why would we want to burden them with right. um, why would we wouldn't want to burden them with a with a transit tax because transit's not an appropriate technology necessarily except for some of these you know rural rural dial ride services, so I think looking at like what the state's done with like you know we're going to put a hundred million into rural broadband that's exactly what the state ought to be doing for rural yeah. areas. So I think creating a framework in which metropolitan governments are able to prov- to do what they need to do, um, without burdening the other parts of the state is what we need to do, and that means we need to have something that has been less the case in Indiana. Indiana is technically a home rule state, but in effect it is not. I mean, localities have extremely uh, limited ability to to do things. Now, I think, you know, we we have to be honest that, you know, these local governments haven't always crowned themselves in glory in using the powers that they have. And there's a reason we had that tax reform bill, and it was because property property tax fiascos and other things – um, so I think lo- localities need to be able to take care of their own business and do and do a better job as well. But I think having that l- flexibility, having the ability to have regional collaboration to do things on, especially on infrastructure and quality of life issues, is really, really, really important. And uh, I would hope that you know at some point there can be a constituency for that uh, in the in the state house. Uh, but it doesn't seem like right now there is. But again, it's also you know this year, for example, is an election year. And so I think, you know, people in, people in, the, in, in the General Assembly are always going to be cognizant of what gets passed in an election yeah. year. <laughs> so these, these, um, 
it's fascinating stuff when you talk about um, not wanting to impose a metro solution on rural Indiana. You and I, I mean, I'm from rural Illinois, you're from rural Indiana, and that definitely resonates. I think one of the challenges is these get cast too often as very two-sided discussions. And so you've got um, the, the General Assembly will pride itself on the low tax burden compared to low state tax burden compared to Ohio, Michigan, and Illinois. And, um, and yet it's not like the talent is flocking to Indiana simply as a result of our tax yeah. climate. So then sometimes I can picture, you know, some members of our general assembly, we get in these conversations and arms folded. They'll be like, are you saying we've been doing it wrong all along? And I'm like, no, I guess the, it, it feels like the ideal would be how do you build off the relative, you know, frugality, oftentimes good government, responsible government, of, you know, baseline that we've set in Indiana. We don't have the pension problems that um, mm-hmm. many of our other cities do. Mer- you know, mercifully, Mitch Daniels working with Greg Ballard and other mm-hmm. mayors, the state took over most of the pension liability that exists, um, you know, in, in Indiana. So you're, you're starting from a pretty strong position of fiscal stability and fiscal responsibility, but I think it just begs a strong case of, well, where do we go from there? Because that low costs and low taxes are, are obviously not going to attract the talent and not attract the diversity of jobs. So is that is that the right way yeah. to think about the question? Yeah. We certainly don't want to be a high-tax state. I mean, that's, that's for sure. I mean, like, I, believe me, I, I'm all in favor of low taxes. Uh, so you're not going to get any argument from me there. But I think we have to learn the difference between um, – you know, having a, 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 I think we just think about value for money. What am I getting for my money? And one of the reasons that people are so skeptical of new taxes is that it's like pouring money in down a rat hole. I gave these guys more money. They raised their income tax or whatever. And what did I get for that? And, and the reality is in a lot of places, you're actually getting spending more and getting less in part because of all of these legacy liabilities. All the money you're spending is going into the, to the pension maw, and none of it's going into public services. I think what you've seen is, in even in very low-tax, extremely conservative red state environments, when you have a tax that is ring-fenced for specific purposes and uh, it, you know tangible capital assets – you know exactly what you're going to get for your money. A lot of people are willing to vote for it. I think the transit plan is the perfect example of that. Hey, by the way, we, we, we made that vote. By the way, there is actually a bus rapid transit line running. You're going, you see the buses, you see the stations going up. Um, you, you see that, I think, with some of these school building um, uh, referendums. Uh, I think, again, people are very willing to ap- approve stadium taxes because uh, they know they're going to at least get a stadium at the end of the day. So having that ring-fenced money that gives people confidence that, hey, we're investing in a specific asset, a yeah. specific collection of assets, it's not just going into the pot yeah. where it turns into a slush fund or gets goes to paper over whatever. You have There has to be a connection between input and output in, in spending. I think one of the places that really did it well was Oklahoma City. Now, Oklahoma is interesting in that they finance local government primarily on sales taxes, and so they have a local option sales tax there. And they were able to do these uh, series of initiatives they called MAPS, Metropolitan Area Programs. And they were essentially a set of, you know, 10-year, mostly 10-year capital programs. That's basically like people, if you vote for a, 
uh, for this tax increase, this one percentage point increase in the sales tax, which automatically sunsets at the end of 10 years, here's a list of projects we're going to build with that. And by the way, it's going to be done on a pay-as-you-go basis. We're not going to bond against that revenue. We're only going to spend it as the money comes in. And they did a whole lot of things. They created this big citizens advisory committee to like oversee that. And so the people there, um, that was a city with a you know Republican mayor, Republican council, it's technically nonpartisan, but Republican. Um, and they people voted for it. And again, Oklahoma is a very red state. It was like, okay, I'm going to vote for you know an improved downtown park. I'm going to vote for the streetcar. I'm going to vote for for uh, renovating. One other project was to renovate all the schools uh, in the city. Um, they called it Maps for Kids because they knew what they were getting. And so I think that's a very important thing that we have to have. People have to perceive that they're getting something for the money that they're spending. Yeah. And that, that's that's one that has been an endemic problem in local government in this era in which a, people, a lot of people have accumulated liability. So if yeah. we were to have some infrastructure funding, you know, pro- capability provided by the legislature, we had better see better streets. Yeah. You know, we had better see better snow plowing or whatever we're promising. It's like, here's what you're going to get and you have to deliver on it. Yeah. It's a, it's almost like um, if you, um, this is so oversimplified, but it's almost like if you were built, if you were building the model from where we are now, it's, what is that baseline of state support need to be that covers a lot of basic things, uh, you know, road funding, um, you know, uh, health care, um, you know, higher ed funding and now and now school funding. And then, OK, locals, you will layer on top of that a capital campaign type mm-hmm. structure yeah. <laughs> with radical transparency in terms of where the money is go what where the money is going right. to these to these special projects that you take to the voters and and then hopefully there's a just like in every um, home rule state there's a self-regulating mechanism where if you if you become too aggressive with your capital campaigns they'll vote you out you know right. i don't know it's it's just, it's fun to yeah. think about yeah so i do think some mechanism i mean i don't want the, i mean i don't want to give local governments just more cash either i think you know giving them money but it has to be we have to believe that they're going to deliver deliver stuff and deliver good stuff and that's a, that's a big part of we're in a, we're in a time in which we're in i call it sort of a, a disintegrating or a catabolic phase in our society where all of our institutions are in declining trust people have less and less trust in institutions and so i think that if we're looking at decision making from any organization, whether that be the chamber or whether it be the city government or, or a company, um, one of the, um, you know, goals, one of the key organizational goals should be to take action that strengthens the legitimacy and trust in our organization. And I had a, I had a friend who took over as chairman of the board of a nonprofit, and that was one of his goals for the year he was chairman, I want us to be able to improve people's confidence in our organization. I want everything to be that we're doing is to be increasing confidence in our organization, our institution, because we've essentially been draining confidence out of the system. And so thinking about how to gain confidence uh, is really important. And that means we have to be able to deliver, I think, you know, competently deliver things. And so, you know, the, the, the example, I mean, the, the, the person that I, I really admire who's, who's doing a great job, I think, on, on, on all the things I'm talking about is Mitch Daniels up at Purdue, where he has said, yes, we're going to freeze tuition. We're going to look at every aspect of cost in this operation. Yet, at the same time, he is essentially 
running the biggest construction empire <laughs> in the state. I mean, it's it's incredible what they're doing. Um, you know, what they did with State Street through Purdue. I mean, they've essentially, um, you know, they're transforming West Lafayette. And, like, you know, and here's this Discovery Park District, and here's all the infrastructure. So they're making, they're making big investments to improve at the same time that they've been looking at these other things. Now, I think if you... You know, if 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 he were going to be in there maybe ten more years, which he's he's probably not going to be there ten more years. I think probably the, the 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 third leg of the stool, you know, he would be looking to add is you know how do we take some of these select programs and say we're going to make them the best in the country? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the qual the quality leg I think also needs to to be part of. It. You can't solve for everything at once. You know, you got a tuition crisis. We got to deal with that. Now we're going to deal with like physical and a lot of that. He worked on the very much hard on the entrepreneurship. How do we license the technology? How do we get it out? Um, but but I think. Doing things like that um, uh, is a big deal. I mean, I, I have a, my, my old boss uh, at Accenture. Uh, he and his wife had gone both gone to grad school at Penn State. In fact, his wife had been a, a Penn uh, her, her his father-in-law was, a, I think, a Penn State um, professor for many years, and they had an endowed scholarship at Penn State. And there were all these Penn State people. Well, their kids are going to Purdue. They're so excited about the tuition freeze. Now they're, like, all about Purdue, <laughs> So like people almost like transferring their loyalties to Purdue because they're like, my gosh, we're saving so much money. Uh, and this is a guy who doesn't even have to necessarily worry about money, if you know what I'm talking about. But he's like, yeah, the fact that they're like giving me predictability. Think about that. You start you start college somewhere, and you don't even know what you're going to be paying by the time you're a senior. And so the idea that you can come in there and like, oh, we have some idea that this thing's just not going up, counts for a lot, draws a lot. And so I think I think that's a good example of how they're dramatically improving the quality of place and quality of product. At the same time, they're keeping an eye on the fiscal, which is very yeah. important. Uh, Greg Goodnight, who was the mayor of Kokomo, yeah. didn't run for re-election this time, was, was another guy who did that. I mean, I've never had a mayor, um, and he's a Democrat, uh, if you don't know him. He, uh, When I met him for the very first time, no other mayor I've ever met with has done this. The very first slide he hands me, he hands me a stack of papers. The very first one is his public employee headcount. He's like, here's how we reduce, here's how we're reducing costs. Here's how we're going to garbage collection where we only go up the street once. And so everybody has to take their, their trash can to one side of the street and all the things he's doing to save money. At the same time, he's like, we're building a new YMCA. We're redoing our downtowns. We're building a baseball stadium. We're doing a hotel conference center. We're putting in trails. We're having planners everywhere. So he recognized we need to be fiscal. We need to, uh, to operate in a fiscal way that's consistent with Indiana and um, at the same time, um, find a way to invest in ourselves. And he did all that. He really only had one project that he bonded for. Um, when I checked, they, they, the baseball stadium was the only thing that they bonded for. Everything else was paid for with cash. So it's like we, we freed up all this cash. So I think you had a city that went from essentially the city almost went bankrupt when Chrysler went bankrupt and stopped paying their property tax bill, 20% unemployment, massive. So those are the sorts of things that you can do, I think, yeah. to work. We don't, we don't need to... We don't need to have California tax rates or anything like that here. There are, there are ways to make improvements, big improvements, that are fiscally sound and sane. Yeah. Um, but I think there are some people, candidly, I just think there are some people who don't believe we should have nice stuff. Yeah, It's like that they're just opposed to uh, having anything nice yeah. on principle for some reason. And I, I don't understand that. Um, no matter how fiscally responsible yeah. it is, they just they complain about complain about it and that, that 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 brings up um an article that you wrote for the atlantic if memory serves me 
It was a review of uh, a, a biography um, of J. Erwin Miller, who was the CEO of Cummins in, uh, in Columbus, Indiana, by Nancy Kriplin, um, by Indiana University Press. And this whole idea of, you know, some people just don't want us to have nice stuff. Um, as I recall, that piece was called, you know, the Rust Belt, Rust Belt didn't have to happen. And you were um, kind of reflecting the themes of the book, which is about this, this individual, J. Warren Miller, who basically, I mean, I think he, he was a Republican. He stood for, um, you know, uh, you know, fiscal responsibility and, and, and all, and all of those things, but also, um, was very much a champion for, we're going to have the best education system where our, our, our public spaces and public buildings are going to be the best. They're going to have the world, world-class, um, uh, architects. Um, it seems like this, this idea that some people don't want don't, don't want us to have nice stuff. We have had leaders though, throughout our history mm-hmm. in this region that have bucked that trend. And, and your, uh, you know, recent reflection on J. Irwin Miller would be, yeah. would be an example of that. Yeah, J. Irwin Miller is a, is a great Hoosier example because, I mean, he was someone who operated at the absolute elite levels of U.S. culture and that he was a, he was a, he went to Yale. You know, he was like the fourth generation of his family. So he came from like wealth, 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 um, went to elite schools on the East Coast. He was actually on the board of Yale. He was on the board of the Ford Foundation. He was on the board of the Museum of Modern Art. He uh, was one of the key key men helping to get the Civil Rights Act passed with uh, under LBJ when he was the president of the uh, first lay president of the National Council of Churches, and, and so this is a guy who like uh, you know really showed that Indiana at people in Indiana firms could be competitive at the national and global level, and so I think that's we we, we should feel very good about what he accomplished, and it was just just this forward looking. Um, forward, forward look, and again, he came out of an era when America was a, a very institution building era. It was a much more self confident era, um, and and he really did come in and say, you know, great, we need. He says, I don't want to have the cheapest city. I don't want to have the cheapest community in America. I want to have the best community. I want to be the best community of our size in America. But again, his his famous line uh, that I think they show you when you take the little the tour down there and they show you the film is, he says, this is something that I think, unfortunately people haven't learned here, not always, is a mediocrity is expensive. He's like, look, when you when you do the best, it's, he, he would say, if we put it in business terms, he's talking about total cost of ownership. <laughs> he's like, it's not just about what it costs now. Yeah. It's about the lifetime cost of this. And what's the, been the lifetime cost of the decisions that were made in so many of these Indiana communities? Um, now, I, I just just be fair. If you were an automobile-dominated city like Anderson, where GM had like 50,000 employees, no amount of local leadership was going to change anything about the deindustrialization that happened in some of those cities. Uh, but not every place was in that category. Columbus, Indiana has never lost population in any decade. Even Bartholomew County only lost population in two decades and by a tiny amount. Wow. And, you know, Cummins has remained viable is a Fortune 500 company headquartered there. The quality of life is excellent. The last time I, I counted them all up, there were more Japanese companies there than there were in any other city in the state of Indiana other than Indianapolis, which is vastly bigger. You've got German companies coming in, French companies, Canadian companies, Chinese coming in. The international business there is, is unbelievable. Um, it is one of the, if you look at change in college degree attainment between 2000 and like the present day, 
Columbus is in like in the top five metropolitan areas in the country. They've increased their college degree attainment by 15 percentage point. Diversity is going up there. Yeah. So what, what I find particularly, um, I find particularly kind of perplexing a little bit is you have a community that's been so successful, even during the kind of the worst parts of the, you know, kind of the, the, the downturn. And, and Columbus, it's, it's, it's still a regu- rel- relatively Hoosier city. I mean, you go down there, it's not like you're in, you know, Burlington, Vermont, right. or something like right, that. Yeah. People shop at Walmart. You know, they don't have a Trader Joe's. Yep. Mike you Pence know, is from there. Mike French is from there. It's yeah. not like, you know, it's not even like Bloomington, like a college town like Bloomington, you know, where the Dalai Lama's brother lives and stuff like that. It's basically a blue-collar town. It has the highest share of its employment in manufacturing of any city in Indiana other than Elkhart. Wow. And yet been so successful, but no one cared to imitate them. <clears throat> it's like no one, no one ever said, well, maybe we should do what they're doing. Yeah. I think it's a similar, it's similar if you look at like Carmel, which has just become like a national exemplar of things. Now, you know, you, there's various, you can debate various things that have happened up there, but you find it interesting if you look at the places that have been successful, no one wants to, you know, imitate them. Now, there has been some sort of, you know, ad- adaptation of what Carmel has done in the region with like what they're doing with State Road 37 and Fishers with roundabout interchanges and things like that. Like these are, this investing in place, investing in things like that, it just, the successful places in Indiana have not been seen as models to imitate. Yeah. They've been seen as targets for state intervention <laughs> to keep them from doing yeah. what's been making them successful, which I think is very odd. One thing, um, Columbus has embraced um, diversifying its population and its workforce. It, it's also a growing international um, uh, uh, population in Columbus, growing minority population in Columbus. And, um, there, there, I want to ask you about one other topic, and um, we're going to have to make this a multi-part episode because there's just too much, <laughs> yeah. too much here. And I want, I'll, in a, a future discussion, I want to get into some of the, um, get deeper into some things that you're writing about as part of Indie Forward. Again, you can check out uh, Aaron's writing, um, the the um, Indie Forward series on Medium. But um, Columbus again has has it treated. Uh, has treated diversity and an increasingly diverse workforce and base of residents as an asset. And at the, the previous episode, I had a long conversation with Wild Style, um, and these are these are these are different component parts of economic development that are so important. And Wild Style was talking about the need to confront some of the uglier parts of Indianapolis's history to to embrace a more diverse community and move forward. And I think one of the connection points between your work and the issues that Wildstyle was talking about is very recent data looking at in-migration um, in Indianapolis shows a uh, rapidly increasing African-American population, rapidly increasing Asian population, and this, that, that this is really something that is an asset and we, we and it has got us thinking about how do we talk about it as an asset? How do we get and how do we better understand it so that we can be more competitive as a magnet for talent in, in, in keeping and growing talented individuals here, but also being inviting to um, uh, people from different parts of the country, people from other countries. Um, and I, I want to ask you about your, if you could share some of your observations about the, the recent demographic changes and what that could mean for the Indianapolis region. Yeah, well, I think there's this local perception that Indianapolis is this, you know, lily white city. 
And it's it's definitely in the top third of large metros for its uh, its percentage of white population, uh, but it's not even a top ten. It's like ranks fourteenth or something like that. Pittsburgh, incidentally, is by far the whitest city uh, in America. It's just off the charts. Like eighty five percent of the metro area population um, is, is is white, um, and it is it is rapidly diversifying. So I, I think it, and it's not just happening with. Um, one particular group coming here, but what you're seeing is essentially uh, increasing diversity across a diversity of diversities, if you will. So to me, one of the more interesting ones is the fact that the black population here is growing very substantially. Um, And um, if you look at the Midwest, the black population of Chicago, St. Louis, Detroit, Cleveland, and this is on a metro area wide basis is actually in decline. And I think we've added, um, again, I'm going off memory here, so I might have got the, the, right, uh, the wrong stab. It's like four, something like 40,000, close to 40,000 new black residents since 2010. Uh, it's growing like over 15% uh, since then. And if you look across the Midwest, um, only two regions have added more black residents in Indianapolis, Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Columbus, Ohio. Both of them um, are cities that had a very large Somali refugee influx. So it's not clear whether they're actually a domestic source of dom- a destination for domestic black migration, and that's what you've seen in places like Atlanta, Charlotte, Raleigh, Houston, Dallas. These Sun Belt cities that are booming, they have actually seen, you know, massive black population influx, and um, you know, Atlanta was really the first city that looked at its black population as an asset, um, and rather than saying, "Well, how can we include?" It's sort of Sometimes you think about inclusion, it's almost like a limiting vision. It's like, well, we got to make sure everybody gets their fair piece of the pie. Whereas I think if you look at Atlanta, they said, well, actually, how can we, it's more like an investment banker. It's like, oh, we have this black community. How can we make them a pillar of growth for our entire region? It's a bigger vision. You see, like the, the Metro Charlotte's 24% black, much higher percentage black than, than Indianapolis, one of the most booming cities in the country. Uh, so I think the fact that, uh, the Midwest has, has been very uncompetitive for that demographic, and Indianapolis has become a destination, uh, is one that I think is, is really interesting uh, here. Uh, I think also um, the Hispanic population is large and growing here, like 140,000 Hispanics uh, in, this, in this region. And um, again, I don't know all the breakdowns, but you, uh, you definitely see that it's not like all from Mexico. It's from like all kinds of places all over Latin America. Uh, coming here, um, so there's that. Then there's the Asian the Asian population growth. Something like had like 63 percent Asian population growth since um, 2010. And that's from a low base, but like Indianapolis has grown from basically nothing to a substantial Asian population now. And again, it's not just one group. So there there are the Burmese refugees, mostly on the south side. That uh, so that's essentially our uh, you know as some would call it an artificial. Uh, community because people were just, they didn't choose to come here. The, the government resettled them here through refugee resettlement. Uh, but uh, great to have. But we also have, you know, Sikh truck drivers uh, coming in from Sacramento. And you just read these articles. I mean, you see so many, you know, uh, you see so many, uh, you know, Hindu Indians coming here. You see so many Chinese people coming here. And it's like all the different, all these different groups are coming here. And I think this is important because, particularly for immigrants, uh, it's true for anybody that comes from out of town, but especially for people who come from other countries, is 
they are motivated by opportunity. Like they're here for opportunity, right? And, and, and a lot of them are here for the American dream. It's like everybody wants to talk about how, oh, millennials want to live in an apartment downtown and walk to everything. Well, actually, the, the average you know, immigrant who come here wants to have a house in the suburbs with a yard and a car. That's what, you know, yeah. because that's what they couldn't have yeah. where they came from. And so Joel, I think Joel Kotkin. Yeah, right, Joel Kotkin. Next is like, 100 million. And that's yeah. why, by the way, if you look at where um, immigrants are settling in America now, they're settling in the suburbs. They're mostly not settling in the city because uh, that's an environment. So I think the, the fact that people are choosing to come here in large numbers um, from all these different groups shows that, uh, frankly, uh, they sense the opportunity here. And I think that's good because they're not as driven, I think, by some of these um, domestic reputational concerns around, like, oh, what's the hot city? It's less about what's the hot city. It's more about, like, hey, where did my cousin or my buddy tell me there's, like, yep. a great job here? And and this is important because migration is network-based. So people tend to follow kind of established pathways. And it takes a long time to build, you know, some of the um, – uh, Mexican uh, settlement here came back to like the 70s uh, where some people kind of ended up here by accident, but this has been slowly building over time. And now there's uh, uh, Mexico uh, villages in Mexico, like Tala, Mexico, where like half the village lives here. <laughs> and yeah. there's almost like a correspondent a relationship, but it didn't happen overnight. It happened um, in time. And so I think as these, as these groups have gotten larger and actually have much more cultural infrastructure now, they have... Uh, they have you know, not just one grocery store, like many, many, many grocery stores. They have all the different religious institutions and temples and things like that. They've got the cultural centers. Um, they've got the community organizations. They've got the local chambers of commerce for their their group. You're starting to see that there's infrastructure that makes it even easier for more people to come. Um, so I, I think that that's um, I think that that's great. So I think that the re, the, the reality of of um, diversity here is is um i don't think the perception is caught up with with the reality yeah um on that um uh, quite as yet yeah it you're right though i mean we're we're thought of as a very white city and then you see some of these other cities um uh marketing themselves as more diverse that are in fact not more diverse than indianapolis and it just drives me nuts you know yeah, and so, you know, I mean, I was, uh, you know, uh, my, uh, my my wife and my son and I went over to, we just like to support our neighborhood, so we went over to Speedway this weekend. There's a little park, as something Leonard Park and, and Speedway, and we're there, and it's like I'm at the United Nations, and all these different people here, and uh, it's like, you know, this is not the stereotype of, of any, just look at the people in the lobby of this building uh, when you come in and you, yeah. and you see it. And um, I will say that's one thing that's changed. Ten years ago, if you went to some, like, arts event or something of that nature uh, in Indianapolis, you went to, you know, the hip restaurants of the day there, you would have walked in and it would have been essentially all white people. That's not true today. Yeah. You know, you see black faces in every time I go out to some hip restaurant, any event, there's more and more black faces. There's more and more um, non, you know, non-white people there. So I think some of the social spaces have become more integrated. Now I'm not going to say that this is New York City in terms of diversity by any means, but I think that there's been changes in this that are not completely recognized or or understood. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so I think it's good. When people are choosing to come here, that's a good sign. Yes. You know, you know, when they're coming for opportunity. And, hey, this is Indiana. We know they're not coming here to take advantage of our lavish social benefits. Yeah. Okay. Right. They're coming here because they, they do want a job. They see some kind of an opportunity Absolutely. here. Well, I, I sure appreciate the time. I mean, and, and I'd like to, we'll have to make this a regular, um, a regular conversation because there, there's um, a lot of things that I'll want to talk to you about in the future, including, you know, you've, you've written a lot about storytelling and how cities either brand themselves or don't brand themselves, you know, allow that, allow that, um, the brand and those images to happen. But it's, uh, it's great to have uh, you and, and Katie back in Indianapolis. It's great to have you here. I hope I hope you've enjoyed. I guess you know, um, as we as we have this conversation, the uh, short legislative session ended last night. Um, that's probably a, a, a good opportunity to talk more about um, um, state policy. Um, those of you listening can follow Aaron's work at AaronRen.com, and then specifically the publication that he's writing for the Indie Chamber is called Indie Forward, and you can find that on Medium.com. Uh, Aaron, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you.